0: Luke 17, and this morning we're going to look at verse 1 through 10. We finished up chapter 16 last week, so that brings us right to the beginning of the 17th chapter. And would you stand together with me as I read our text for Bible study this morning? Regarding Jesus, it tells us, Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? And does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. And Father, We lift before you your word and our hearts and minds, our soul and spirit, all of our being. And and we want to continue now in this meeting, what we call a worship meeting, to have an attitude of worship, even as we open up the scriptures. We believe, Lord, that you want to write your will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. We believe that you're a God who speaks. We believe that you're present with us and that you have something to say to each and every one of us in this room this morning. So Lord, would you prepare us individually and would you speak to us powerfully and personally. Bless your word as it goes forth into our lives this morning. Teach us now, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the very basic foundation of our human existence is both interaction with others as well as relationship with others and I say that regarding both God and people that there is interaction and relationship available with God and there is interaction and relationship available with people and really that's right at the very core foundational part of the existence of our time here on this earth The Bible teaches very clearly that God created us for relationship with him. That was God's intention. One of his primary intentions when he designed us and he created us, we've seen that on Wednesday nights in our study in the book of Genesis, that one of the primary reasons God created us was that we might have meaningful and intimate relationship with him that we might know him and experience him as a part of our everyday life, but yet that relationship is something we ultimately all must choose. We choose to enter into that relationship at some point in our lives. We don't have it automatically because the Bible teaches that we are sinful by nature and that our sins separate us from God as a holy God. At some point during the course of our life, God intends for us when we understand who he is and what his plan is for us to consciously choose to enter in to a personal relationship with him in all of our lives. Now that being said... All of us must and all of us will interact with God in our everyday life. Now, we may ignore him, we may resist him, but regardless, every person is going to interact God because God is intimately involved in the affairs of everyday life on this earth. The Bible says that in him we live, we move, we have our being. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit and from your presence. There's nowhere to go. God is involved in the everyday affairs of life. He's superintending things and because of that we will automatically each one of us from the moment we're born we're going to encounter God. We're going to experience God. Now, again, we may ignore him and try and shut him out of our life. We may resist him and fight him off to our dying breath if that's what we choose to do in our, in our stubbornness. The Bible says, Woe to him who strives against his maker, and, and we can do that. But nonetheless, we will all encounter God. But the goal ultimately is that we would come to a place recognizing God's love for us and God's plan for us that we would choose to say, Wow. This God who exists is wanting a meaningful personal relationship with me. And of course, we know that comes through his son, Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins and is the mediator between God and man that we might have a relationship. That's the ultimate goal that we'd enter into that relationship. Now, in the same way we interact with God and have a relationship with God, the Bible also records how God's intention was that this earth be filled with people. God told Adam and Eve right away, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So guess what? That means that on this planet, we're going to have to share space and occupation and everything. And we have to coexist on this planet with lots of other human beings just like ourselves. And we have to learn how to coexist together here and we have to learn how to interact with different kinds of people and that includes constant interactions with all types of people in all types of situations and experiences and circumstances. It is just part of this life if you haven't realized it yet that you're going to interact with people. It's unavoidable. We're going to interact with people but beyond that God also intends that we will learn to develop relationships With people, meaningful relationships. And I think that's all based off of us having a proper relationship with God because when we have a proper relationship with God vertically, then we learn to have the capacity to have proper relationships with people horizontally in our lives. Now, It's because of these interactions and relationships that we will have on this planet both with God and with other human beings around us. I think that Jesus therefore gives us some of these instructions that we find here in Luke chapter 17 you'll notice that Jesus is speaking pretty directly and specifically about interactions and relationships among people and interactions and relationships that take place between us and our God as well as those two things tie together. Again, if you were to sort of outline this section, verse 1 and 2, Jesus pretty clearly gives some strong warnings regarding being guilty or responsible of causing offenses towards other people and being the offender. And then when he gets to verse 3 and 4, he then supplies instruction about responding to the offenses of others that hurt and harm us. On the other side, when we're the victim, when we're the one who's been offended or the one who has been hurt or harmed by someone else, how do we respond? Then in verse 5 and 6, Jesus gives some insight regarding where and how we can find and receive the enablement that we need at times in our lives to be able to forgive and to reconcile when we are wounded or sinned against and hurt by someone else. And then lastly, in verses 7 to 10, and we'll more sort of more kind of skim and summarize that in a briefer uh, portion of our study at the end. There in verse 7 to 10, Jesus, I think, is asking for a proper heart attitude in our lives when we simply do the right thing. When we do the right thing in relationship to him and when we do the right thing in relationship to one another, Jesus says, look, it's not just doing the right thing. I want a right attitude. And I want a right attitude in your heart when you do those right things. Well, look with me again back in verse 1. Our story opens up by telling us again that Jesus, speaking now to his disciples, says to them, it is impossible, I wish it didn't say that, but it does, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come, the responsible party. It would be better, Jesus says, for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. So again, verse 1 and 2, Jesus here gives strong warning about causing offenses toward other people that hurt or harm or hinder others. And the first thing that Jesus does right out of the gate is he indicates very directly the reality that it is impossible during our existence on this planet to escape somehow from on occasion painful things happening from one person to another and people harming and hurting and wounding one another. Jesus shows here and speaks about how part of this life and reality in this world will include things being done by one person that are hurtful, harmful, and wrong to other people. Do you notice what he says in verse 1? Again, he says, it is impossible that no offenses should come. He says it's impossible for no offenses to happen. That is, the absence of sinful behavior among mankind is not possible in this life. The reality is, let's always remember, and sometimes we kind of tend to forget, this is not heaven. This is earth. And this is an earth that has fallen under the curse of sin and it is filled with sinful people of which you and I are direct contributors to, if we want to be honest and humble, that we contribute our fair share of sinful deeds and wrongdoings and hurtful actions as well. People committing offenses towards one another and offending one another is unavoidable, Jesus says. It's going to happen. On occasion, it can't be escaped, and therefore, offenses are going to come, and people are going to be the victims on occasion of hurtful things and harmful things done to them by other people. This term Jesus uses here, offenses, in verse 1 and 2, is the Greek word scandalon. And it refers to the bait stick that was used in that day to capture or to ensnare animals. It referred to how they would use this bait stick basically to uh, be a stumbling block to trip up the animal's reasoning and to cause it to sort of be lured off path and kind of caught into a trap. You know, as Jesus is using this word offense or offend, no doubt it's a reference to kind of creating a pitfall for someone or doing something that would stumble another person. In fact, your version in your Bible may actually render this section things causing people to sin. And that does capture part of the idea. It's impossible that things won't happen whereby others cause people to sin. And notice that Jesus speaks specifically of offending or stumbling, he says in verse 2, these little ones. Now when he uses that term there, these little ones, possibly there's some reference there. To Jesus referring to young children, to little ones literally who are uh, naive and innocent as little children are. In Matthew's account it seems children was present at the time Jesus was speaking to some of these things. But more likely that term little ones there is a reference to young believers, to newborn babes in the faith. Remember, at this time, recently, we just saw many tax collectors and harlots and, and sinners of all types were coming to Jesus and they were beginning to follow him and they were being born again and they were brand new babes in the faith. They were being born again by the Spirit and they were brand new babes in Christ and their new walk with Jesus. So they were young, they were little ones, they were young in their relationship with God And part of being a child or being young, whether literally chronologically being young or whether being young and and new in your relationship with God as a born-again Christian and the child of God, part of being young and little are things like naiveness, are things like innocence, which both contribute to, here's another important word, vulnerability. Vulnerability see a little one whether chronologically or a little one a newborn babe in Christ a new believer spiritually they're still naive they're very innocent and therefore they become very very vulnerable they're susceptible to being hindered and hurt and harmed all the more and sadly the scribes and the Pharisees as we've seen they've been resisting Jesus they've been complaining about Jesus' ministry and criticizing the tax collectors and the sinners who were coming to him And by their actions and words, these religious leaders were doing things and saying things that were stumbling and tripping up these vulnerable newborn babes in Christ. And the religious leaders themselves were actually the ones who were guilty of causing confusion in the lives of young believers. It was the religious leaders who were responsible for creating spiritual pitfalls for these little ones in the faith and these brand new believers who are following Jesus. So Jesus strongly indicates in these verses how he feels about that. And he pretty clearly here, in a few words without mincing his terms, assures us that he will punish such things and offenses that hurt and harm in that way. He says it's impossible that no offenses should come. We need to accept that. He says, verse 1, but woe... To him through whom they do come. He says it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. So Jesus here says, Woe to the person who is responsible for doing such things to other people. Woe to that person, Jesus says, who is responsible for putting a stumbling block that harms other people spiritually putting a pitfall in the life of someone where you hurt and harm them emotionally or psychologically or even physically. Jesus says woe to the person responsible for that. In fact, verse 2, when he says it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I mean, you look at it, Jesus almost sounds like he goes mafia there, doesn't he? Woe to that person. Jesus says it'd be better. It'd be better, he says, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were tossed Overboard into the depths of the sea. Now that's pretty strong language. I think it just shows Jesus' protective love. That word millstone that Jesus uses there too in the original language it's not the hand stone that they would use to grind up meal. That stone that is being referred to there by Jesus was the large millstone that was turned by the donkey to grind out the grain. It basically was a huge if you can picture like a, a big John Deere tractor tire. It was like a huge flat cement stone about the size of a John Deere tractor trier that that as the donkey would walk around, it would grind out the grain. Now, putting that image into your mind and picturing that hung on someone's neck and then them being tossed into the sea, it's pretty obvious the inevitable outcome that's going to take place. They are going to drown forcefully. And they are going to drown miserably and severely. They are going to be put under as a consequence of what they did. And Jesus says, take note with me in verse 2. He says, it would be better if this happened first. In other words, when Jesus talks about the millstone being tossed in the sea, he says, I'll tell you something, that's the preferable option. If someone's guilty of this, Jesus says, the preferred option would be to get the large millstone tossed around your neck, hung there tightly, and then be pushed over into the sea. Jesus says, that would be better for you than to do such things and to stand before me and my Father ultimately to give account and receive what we will give for violating and hurting someone else through offenses and stumbling blocks in such a way. Wow. That's pretty strong language. It shows the protective love of Jesus saying that would be the preferable option there. He's given a pretty grave and serious warning about doing things that stumble and offend other people. That hurt or harm people, leading them into pitfalls or causing them to sin. Being someone who's responsible for a spiritual stumbling block, Jesus shows is a really serious matter. Especially to God, who is a loving Father, as we are, in a much greater extent, and you and how you feel about your children if someone were to hurt or harm one of your children. And especially, it's a big deal to Jesus, who's a loving, very protective older brother who looks upon us with great care and doesn't take lightly when such things happen. See, listen, there is one thing worse than sinning yourself, and that's leading other people to sin along with you. And there is one thing worse than going to hell and that's guiding and leading other people to go to hell with you. See, how tragic when someone sees someone else committing a sin or involved in some habit or whatever and, and, and they're even questioning, what are you doing? I'm doing exactly what I learned from you. It's what you taught me. It's what you exposed me to. So now I do this too. Or I can't imagine the reality of somebody being in hell and somebody's being shocked. What, what, what are you doing here? What, why are you in hell? Why well, followed you here? I followed you here. See, there's something worse. Not only to do such things ourselves, but to lead and to direct others into similar pitfalls, to be actively opposed to the Lord and live ungodly and influence others in a negative way whereby we cause them to be misguided spiritually, again, even with false doctrine or wrong spiritual ideas. And and let's soberly recognize we, in some extent, form and fashion, can all be capable, if we're not careful, of stumbling other people and we need to be cautious and take consideration to our own lives let's talk about something a little more maybe subtle that we often don't think about and that's like what Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 talk about where it warns us as Christians to be careful in the exercise of our Christian liberties that we have we're under grace so there are certain liberties that we have as Christians certain things that we do we have freedoms and the word of God gives us some freedoms and there are certain liberties under a life of grace. Yes, we need to be careful though when we exercise our liberties that our liberty doesn't become a stumbling block for someone else who with a weaker conscience or maybe less spiritual maturity, they see us enjoying and indulging our liberty and therefore they get ensnared and it becomes a pitfall and they fall and become trapped. Listen to Romans fourteen thirteen. It says, resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's Way, Romans 14 verse 21 says, It is good neither to eat meat or to drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Paul says as well in a similar chapter, 1 Corinthians 8, as he's talking about these sort of... Secondary things where we have liberty and some do indulge and others don't. He says there, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Listen, as believers who are supposed to put love as the uppermost, as Christians, who Philippians 2 tells us that we are to consider others better than ourselves. Each of you looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's a Christ-like attitude where I live my life not saying I will live however I wanna live. That's your problem if you have an issue with it. Whoa! Well, the Bible says that we live in love and that we consider others better than ourselves. And, and that we always take into consideration love being the uppermost, the reality that, hey, maybe I can do this and it doesn't harm or distract me. But if someone else who I have an influence upon watches me or sees and maybe they have a weaker susceptibility in this area, that could end up being their shipwreck. Let me give you a perfect example. Does the word of God say that, that, that we can't get drunk and, or that we can't drink at all? No, it doesn't. It clearly tells us that drunkenness is wrong. That's indisputable. But the word of God, I can't tell you, says that we do not have the right or the freedom to drink. You can't build that case. It always speaks of drinking in a negative light because it often leads to drunkenness and destructive things. But there's one of those areas where there's a liberty and you know what, maybe you can exercise your liberty and you can periodically have a glass of wine with your dinner and, and it's no struggle for you. And it doesn't stumble you. You don't get caught into it. It doesn't become an addiction or something that that bothers you. But you also need to take into consideration as you exercise that liberty, if there are others who you influence or who are watching you and they see you do that, well, well you drink alcohol. So I guess I can drink alcohol. And then they enter into the same thing and they have no self-control or maybe they have a prior struggle with that as a life-dominating habit and all of a sudden they're shipwrecked. You know I can't drink because of the fact that what I understand as my responsibility in the word of God is my, my, my foremost concern is not just what is my liberty I'm willing to set aside my liberty for the sake of love to be usable for the Lord and therefore there are certain things in my life that I refrain from out of the understanding of the tremendous effect that my life has on my wife and my children and and people that I, that I minister to the truth of the matter I'll tell you this I drink as much as I want I don't want to. Do you see? It's a liberty, but it's not something I have to indulge. And there are different areas of liberties and freedoms that we have in our life as Christians. As the Bible says, look, all things are lawful. All things are permissible. But Paul says, but I won't be brought under the power of anything. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we need to filter through these things recognizing that in love we can have a tremendous influence. As parents, let's be cautious. We have an incredible influence on our children, both when they're young, even as they continue to grow. We have an incredible influence and we can easily, as parents, stumble our children. And we're going to give account to God, I believe, for the influence and the impact and the example we had for what things we chose to do or chose not to do because we're having a tremendous influence in the way that we live our life and how we walk out our faith and then we profess to be a Christian but what kind of Christian are we presenting to our children? Well, I profess to be a Christian. Well, well, that's great but what kind of Christian do you present yourself as in front of your children who are looking at you saying do I want to be that kind of Christian like dad is or do I want to be kind of Christian like mom is? And see, because the flesh does that kind of stuff. And when we make little compromises and concessions ourselves, that's one thing. But when those things start having an effect on others, that's really powerful. And we need to remember that. It's very important. All of us, to some extent, have people looking to us and learning from us. Again, maybe you're, you're a school teacher. Maybe you're a sports coach. Maybe you're a manager and you have employees that look up to you. Potentially you're in a place of leadership or you have a younger relative that's looking to you. Or people just looking to you because you're a Christian. We all have people that we influence in different ways, even as students. you know, Maybe God wants you to be an example in that role on your campus that people would see something different and when they look at you, they can get a proper evaluation. We, I think it's good on occasion to stop and say, is there anything, Lord, that I'm doing and I'm involved in that could potentially be a real stumbling block to someone else? And to allow those things to be points of evaluation because Jesus says some pretty strong things here how he feels about doing such things, creating pitfalls and stumbling blocks. It's, it's serious. And Jesus gives strong warning. You know, I can't help, before we leave this section, to say as well, as I look at Jesus' words, especially there in verse 1 and 2 about woe to those through whom are responsible for offenses and better for him if the millstone around his neck and toss in the sea than to offend one of these little ones, I, I can't help but to look at that and to think too, th- the sobering reality of those who physically harm little ones who abuse children, who molest children, and to realize the repercussions of standing before Jesus for having done those kind of things. Sobering words as Jesus gives strong warning here to becoming guilty of being the offender. But you say, well, what about being the victim? What if I'm the victim? What if I'm the one who's been stumbled or caught in a pitfall because of someone else or I've been hurt or harmed? Well, that's what Jesus addresses next. Notice in verse 3. He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So here we see Jesus supplies now instruction about responding to offenses that we become the victim of things that maybe hurt or harm us when someone sins against us interesting to me is Jesus develops this idea now of exercising forgiveness notice the first thing he does there in verse 3 is he actually gives a warning first of all to us he says take heed to yourselves in other words Jesus says be careful Tony of your heart when you respond to occasions when someone sins against you take heed to yourself be careful. Guard yourself. Why? Because most of us don't naturally respond very well when someone sins against us. When someone does something mean or harmful or hurtful that angers us or upsets us or wounds us, uh, we naturally wrestle with anger and we wrestle with hurt and we wrestle with feelings even of revenge and unforgiveness and bitterness. And these things can ultimately paralyze a person's life. So Jesus says, you need to take Take heed to yourself. Be careful when you're the one that's sinned against. Because these things, if left unchecked in your life, the thoughts and feelings as a result of being a victim, they can powerfully persuade and powerfully control your life where they paralyze you permanently in that condition. And you find yourself perpetually struggling and stumbling and stuck in a pitfall because of what happened to you. So Jesus says here, when you're sinned against, Tony, he says, pay special attention to how you're handling it. Pay attention to how you're responding to it. Evaluate and be honest with how you're doing as a result of what has taken place to you. And it's a warning for our own benefit lest we struggle unnecessarily. So Jesus says here, if you are sinned against, he says, go and rebuke, that is confront, speak directly to your brother. And if he repents, Jesus says, forgive him. Go and rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now typically... Again, if we were to be real, when we are sinned against, usually that is not the first natural response of what we do. Usually when we're sinned against, we go and report about the person. We don't rebuke them. We go report about them and what they did to everyone else that's around us or at least to a few people who we can get a sympathetic ear from. And I'm not saying there's not a place to share struggles and to pray and to encourage one another. But many a times, especially completely out of the order, before going and addressing what we're instructed to do first, we go do the thing we're not instructed to do. And we go and report to everybody else and begin to share things. And Jesus says, no, the appropriate response is you need to go and speak to that person directly. That we as the offended party, the victim in the situation, are to go to and confront the infraction openly and honestly in Matthew chapter 18 Jesus gives us their biblical protocol for such occasions Jesus says this in Matthew 18 moreover if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone and if he hears you you've gained your brother that's the goal you want to gain your brother back see sometimes people don't even know they've offended us Sometimes people aren't even aware they've hurt or harmed us. We're very dull and and many times unsensitive. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case, but that's one of the primary reasons, if not a few others, that Jesus says, look, when you're hurt, you need to go tell them that you're hurt. You know, anybody who's married knows this. You walk around hurt and angry and mad, and and you, 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 I didn't know I hurt you, and you don't figure it out until the way they start to act around you. Jesus, no, you need to directly communicate be honest. Maybe they're, they're clueless to what they did. But certainly, if they are aware, and it was a genuine, realistic infraction in some way, Jesus says, this is the protocol. It's your responsibility, if you were sinned against, it's your responsibility to directly go to that person and to openly and honestly convey to them, to confront them in a true way, hey, th- this, this offended me, this hurt me this angered me and to share with them the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 15 that we're to be speaking the truth in love confronting the individual who did the hurtful or harmful thing through communication conflicts are going to happen right people are going to do things Jesus said that at the beginning the important thing is that we process and work through those things in a healthy and God honoring way to me, it's almost interesting that Jesus uses the words there uh, in verse three, where he says, "If your brother sins against you," he doesn't say, "If your enemy does." I expect my enemy to sin against me. If your brother sins against you, man, that's talking relationship there, close, and that—that's and that, more difficult, right? You expect the person you don't get along with or your enemy to, to hurt you, to wound you, to sin against you. But when the close people to you do it, someone you're in relationship with, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, again, our responsibility, he says, resolve such situations. Here's the protocol. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone, privately talk to him about it. And he says, and as the one who sinned against, it is your responsibility to take the initiative. To take the initiative. Because see, many times we don't do that. We say things, we justify in our minds, and I've heard people say many times, I'm not going and talking to them until they apologize. Well, that sounds very reasonable, but it's totally unscriptural. Because the Bible says, No, you're supposed to take the initiative, I'm supposed to take the initiative, go to them alone, tell them their fault, rebuke them confront them talk to them about it speak the truth in love in the hopes that they will then be aware of what they did clearly and how it affected you in a way that they would be repentant and say oh my goodness you know, I apologize and you can talk through the situation that's our role we can't control how they respond, but our responsibility before God is to go and to do that and Jesus says convey it and if they repent he then says forgive them if he repents forgive them Now, let's be honest. What does it really mean to forgive? Does it just mean to say a few quaint words and phrases and brush the issue under the rug and avoid really dealing with what actually happened and the effect it's having on you and how you feel about it? You know, I jotted in my notes here the word forgive and put this down as a definition. Forgive means to cease to feel resentment against, to release from punishment for the crime Committed. Let me read that again. Forgive to cease to feel resentment against and to release from the punishment for the crime committed. Think with me. Isn't that exactly how God forgave us? The just, holy, righteous, and loving God. What's God's forgiveness? God, When God forgives us, he ceases to feel any aspect of animosity towards us for our sins He's not having resentment and animosity and when, when we're not truly forgiving someone we we still feel resentment in our heart. We hear their name or we think about them we just feel resentment still. And it also means to release them from the punishment of the crime. To not think that they deserve or to not feel that you need to still implement punishment because we do that too. Oh, people I hear on occasion say, especially I see this in marital situations, where well, oh, I forgive him or I forgive her. Well, you say that, but you're punishing them every day by the way that you treat them. You have genuinely forgiven them because you're still punishing them for it. And we do it in manipulative little sneaky ways, but the resentment is gone and you release them. From any treatment that would still be trying to be punishment towards them for the crime and the wrong thing that they did. That's the model example of how God forgives and how we are too. Ephesians 4 tells us let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, listen to the key, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the model that we're to implement. That's the way we're to issue and extend forgiveness, challenging as it often is. And then Jesus, verse 4, throws the zinger in there that really is hard for all of us to swallow. He says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, he says, you shall forgive him. You shall forgive him. Now, it's hard enough to forgive and let go when something happens once, true? But when the same person or the same thing happens repeatedly with frequency, it only increases the difficulty of extending forgiveness. And Jesus here uses words to give an intense portrayal. He says, "If somebody sins against you seven times, then he adds, not just seven times, in one day." Not just they've done it seven times, but seven times in one day." Now the rabbis in that, they taught you were extremely merciful. If you forgave someone or something three times. So, Jesus' words, seven times and in the same day, are pretty shocking and sobering for them to be hearing on their ears. And Jesus says, Despite the repetitiveness of the offense and how it has angered you and it hurt you, Jesus says, Nonetheless, you shall forgive. Wow. That's intense. That's challenging to swallow. Now, was Jesus giving a formula there? if he does it seven times in a day you shall forgive is he giving a formula okay you get seven times because you know how our minds are right you get seven times in a day so on time six we're down here closing up our fists going alright one more and I can slug him uh, I, that's my mental I'd be like that after six he only said seven he didn't tell me what to do after seven <laughs> free for all then no Jesus wasn't given a form. We're talking about an attitude of forgiveness. Interesting, seven in the Bible is a picture of completeness. Complete forgiveness, continual forgiveness, an attitude of being merciful, willing to let things go when they happen. Again, later on Jesus and Peter are having a dialogue right after this conversation about offenses, and Peter came to Jesus and said, "Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him?" Up to 7 times? And Jesus said, "Remember, I do not say to you up to 7 times, but seventy times seven. Now Matthew, the tax collector, he was an accountant. He was probably four hundred and ninety. Okay, but at four eighty nine, you know, again, no, it's a habit, an attitude of mercy, a heart attitude of wanting to be forgiving somebody who is willing to let things go and to forgive completely. Now. In balance, Does that mean, therefore, that we must be naive and keep putting ourselves into a vulnerable place when somebody's dangerous and they're harming us and hurting us? No. God's given us common sense and he tells us to be good stewards. When they tried to push Jesus off a cliff, he walked away from the crowd. He got out of harm's way. It's not what the Bible's teaching. But it's reminding us that no matter how many times it may be necessary to forgive We are to be in the habit of forgiving. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Now, not one of us in this room would be honest if we did not say that what Jesus is asking right there in those verses is not easy or natural. To forgive somebody once is hard enough but to forgive something repeatedly, to have an attitude of continuous forgiveness, especially considering some of the real grievous things that people do to people, some of the heinous, hurtful, destructive things that people do, to have that attitude of forgiveness. I think that's why when the apostles there hear Jesus saying, hey, if your brother sins, go to him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he does it seven times in the same day and he said, keep forgiving him, I think that's why when they hear this, they say, verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they're hearing what Jesus is saying. Lord, what you are asking, that sounds impossible. That seems unachievable. You need to increase our faith. Interesting, they don't ask for more love, isn't it? Lord, increase our love. They say, no, increase our faith because love may motivate me to want to forgive But it truly takes faith to activate forgiveness. It takes believing in God, Lord, what has happened to me? It's hard to just be able to work through that. See, the truth of the matter is to realize and to accept and embrace the spiritual principles that Jesus teaches us about forgiveness, it really does take faith because it contradicts the rational mind. See, everything in my feelings and your feelings when we're hurt and sinned against is challenged. It contradicts logic and reason to say that I should forgive this person or forgive this person repeatedly or fully or completely. It contradicts my reason and my flesh resists forgiveness. And therefore, no doubt, that's why the disciples are saying, Lord, we need you to increase our faith to believe that that is really the right thing to do because everything in my system is fighting against the reality of doing that. Everything in my system says to me, I don't want to go talk to him. I don't want to go talk to her. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to give them a chance to apologize. And I don't want to accept their apology. And I don't even know how, if it's happened as many times as it has in the deep wound that's taken place, I don't even know if I'm willing and want to do that. Lord, you need to increase my faith to believe that somehow you will enable me to do what you're asking me to do. And as they say, Lord, increase our faith, he responds saying to them, verse 6, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Jesus' answer is insightful. He says to them, Listen, you say increase our faith. I tell you have a faith as a, if you have faith as a mustard seed. The smallest seed in Israel, but yet it produced an unnaturally large plant. So it was something that when it sprung to life, it produced a much larger result than would be expected. And then he says, you can say to this mulberry tree or sycamore tree, and a mulberry or sycamore tree was known for an extremely deep root system. And therefore it was perceived as an extremely permanent, immovable tree because it had a huge root system down under the surface. So as Jesus says these things to the Jews listening to him, this was clearly connecting in their minds exactly what he was saying. In essence, Jesus was saying, listen, you say increase our faith to forgive. He says, I'm telling you that if you have even the smallest quantity of faith, even the smallest quantity of faith, you can experience the power to uproot the most permanent, deeply rooted and entrenched plant that exists among you and it would instantly be pulled up no matter how deep the roots are and it would be removed and it would be taken away. And keep in mind, Jesus is saying these things in relation to what? Forgiveness. In relation to forgiveness. Perhaps you're here this morning and maybe somebody has done something that's really angered you. Maybe you're here this morning and somebody has indeed really hurt or harmed you in your life spiritually, physically, emotionally. There are some really grievous things that happen on this earth that people become victims of and Jesus is sort of reminding us here and I think it's so picturesque that when we are sinned against, when we're sinned against, it's kind of like something becomes planted down within our being. And that thing shoots roots down real deep. Isn't it interesting Hebrews tells us it speaks of a root of bitterness springing up it says that can defile many and when somebody sins against us it sort of takes root in our being and then it starts to grow and it even starts to produce fruit by the way we act and the way we speak and the way we talk and the way we think about things and comprehend situations and and it becomes self-destructive and Jesus says that's not God's intention God's intention is to uproot that thing and get it out of you God's intention is he wants you to be able to allow that to be taken away from your life. And he's offering encouragement and hope that the deepest rooted unforgiveness in our lives can indeed be removed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ if we go to him and ask for such help. Interesting here that Jesus offers insight how to receive enablement to forgive and it comes through a living faith in him. And his power. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed. They say, increase our faith. He says, you don't need a greater quantity of faith. He says, it's about the quality of your faith. See, faith is based upon its object. Faith in and of itself doesn't give us any power. You can positive confess everything you want, it's the object of our faith. Faith is just the conduit whereby we receive the power from the living Lord. And that's why we have to have a living faith. A living faith in a living Lord who we look to and we rely upon through a personal relationship whereby we come to Him with a faith that is alive within us because we recognize forgiveness is not natural. It's supernatural. I don't know why we think we need supernatural power to do anything and everything else in this life, but we many times forget that we need supernatural power from a living Lord. To enable us to forgive. Remember, he was the one who, as he hung upon the cross, one of his last few breaths, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I need that living Lord through my living faith in him to enable me to be able to do the same. We need a living faith through a relationship because it takes faith to believe that the Lord can help me let things go. It takes faith to believe that I can trust the Lord to deal with that person. Because vengeance is his and it doesn't belong to me. It takes faith to believe that I can trust somehow this will work out for something good. A living faith where I can honestly come before Jesus just like you and say, Lord, I don't want to forgive. To be very honest, Lord, I don't know how, I don't have the ability, but I believe. Lord, I believe that you can work a powerful miracle in my heart right now. Ephesians chapter 3 says that he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond what we could ask or imagine through his power that works in us. And given some of the things that we do to one another and given some of the things that have been done to some of you in this room throughout the course of your life, it's not natural for you to forgive. You can't let go on your own. You can't be healed and be released from the burden of the bitterness and the angst and and what unforgiveness does to us. It's going to take a living faith. It's only out of the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ who forgave you that you can say, Lord, help me now to extend to others what I've received from you. And Lord, I need your power and I trust you can give me the power supernaturally to let go and to be forgiven to extend that to someone else. Look at verse 7 through 9. Jesus gives a, a quick story or parable here now, and he's illustrating a proper attitude. He says, And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? In other words, the master says to the servant, Hey, you know what? Let me serve you instead. Just come in and sit down. He says, Would he not rather say to a servant, No, prepare my meal, gird yourself, and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and afterwards, then you can have your meal? And does he, verse 9, thank that servant, Jesus says, because he did the things that were commanded to him? And Jesus says, I don't think so. In other words, again, he's using an illustration regarding a proper attitude of a servant doing what his master commands of him and asks of him. And Jesus' point here very simply is this, is the role of a servant is to obey the orders of his master. They knew that. that, was, that was, he says, look, consider this. Wouldn't that be totally unnatural If the roles were reversed, he says a master and a servant understand the role of the servant is to serve the master, to obey the orders and do whatever the master commands and serve his purposes. So it would be completely unnatural if a servant was released from his obligations and duties that his master put upon him. It would be totally out of the ordinary for a master in that culture, especially to ever thank one of his slaves or servants for doing what he was rightfully supposed to do in that relationship so verse 10 Jesus says so likewise you when you've done all those things which you are commanded forgiveness being one of them say we are unprofitable servants we have done what was our duty to do so Jesus says look in the same way as servants of him as our master let's always remember in our heart attitude we are expected to do what we're commanded by Jesus And because of this role where he's the master and we're the servant with no rights, we should simply do what we do and obey with a proper art attitude, remaining humble and not thinking that we deserve something for it or even that we should necessarily be rewarded for it. Jesus says when you do those things that you are commanded, simply say, again, this humble attitude, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. In other words, God doesn't want us going... Yeah, I'm a seven-time-a-dayer. That's me. And I better get some reward for that because seven times. No, he says, no. Have a humble attitude that realizes I've probably been forgiven seven times every day myself for ways in which I offend and sin against the Lord even since I've come to the Lord. And all I'm doing is following in the footsteps of my master and extending exactly what's been extended to me. And Jesus asked for this humble attitude where when we serve the Lord in the many ways that we do, and there are many ways we serve him, that we would never serve the Lord thinking somehow that we deserve recognition or appreciation. Because I tell you, that will sink your ship real quickly, spiritually, truthfully, the Lord does not owe me anything for obeying him. Jesus doesn't owe me anything for serving him. I'm an unprofitable servant who got saved by the grace of God and snatched out of the pit of hell. And the Lord says, And I'll let you serve me. I'll let you represent me. And the Lord wants us to have that right attitude of humility where we, out of gratitude and humility, say, Look, I'm just an unprofitable servant, and you know what? All I did was what was my duty to do. I exercised. A representation of Jesus in a right relationship with Jesus in a relationship with my fellow man. And the Bible tells us that we should be doing the will of God from the heart sincerely. That's our calling. That's our calling. So whatever it is you do for the Lord, don't do it just to get rewarded. Yes, He rewards us, but don't do it for that reason. Don't do it because you expect appreciation or recognition. Do it because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And do it with that right attitude that Jesus could honor that and bless that and keep you a usable vessel. Let's stand. Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks into our lives directly and and personally. How you address us right where we're at, Lord. And we pray the things you've spoken to us by your spirit this morning. That we could be responsive to. Lord, you know in this room you see the heart of every person standing here in this place what's happened in all of our lives the painful events the difficulties Lord, I pray for your help your healing to do the right thing to be released and delivered from the things that are destructive when we're harmed I pray too for those of us, Lord who maybe have been guilty of harming and failing others that we would honestly take ownership for those things And maybe make amends and repent ourselves because of stumbling or offense we may have caused. Help us to be honest with ourselves this morning and give us your spirit's enablement to be responsive to what you have said to us personally this day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.